It does my heart so good just to see you guys. Just to put that out there before we jump in. I just love seeing you guys. And um, I want to um, remind you of like the policies, right? Because this is COVID world and nobody remembers anything and it changes from day to day. You're free to lower your mask at this moment. If you so desire, you don't have to. My parents came, they're from Illinois one day, and they're like, oh, no, 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 we're masked up the whole time. But it's fine, do you, you do you. Um, but I want to let you know you can breathe for a second. If I preach longer, you can breathe for longer too, so, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's not a bad thing. Hey, I, uh, I think you guys know a little bit about my life, but I, I grew up as a church rat. What that means is I spent more time in a church auditorium than I did on a baseball diamond, if you know what I mean. I'm not angry about it. I enjoyed the blessings that came from growing up in a church family that felt like home. Um, but what it also means for me is that I've seen my fair share of church crazy over just a few short decades of my life. I remember the outcry at our small congregation, a church that I was born into, when my progressive mother, who was the pianist at the church, tried to introduce praise choruses in additions to the hymns that we were already singing, you would have thought she had lost her mind. Questions were being asked in the 1980s. Churches were going through this apparent revolution. They were asking questions like, even though the Bible says to worship God with clanging cymbals, is it appropriate to have a drum set in the service? They're asking questions like, if we have guitars on stage, like Elvis does, or the Beatles, or someone worse, like James Taylor, <laughs> would God be honored, or would he be disgusted? Even though the Psalms tell us to sing a new song to the Lord, what's wrong with the old ones? Across the nation, those on the inside of church call these conversations, this is a decade of our life that I'm grateful for COVID because we forget some things, but it's a, a decade, two decades of our church's evangelical church in America's existence we called the worship wars. Yes. I could hardly think of a war that was less inherently interesting to those outside the church than the church's worship wars. Even the War of Pigs in 1859, which nobody knows about, sounds way more interesting than the worship wars. I think it's crazy that we gave to this conversation the moniker war as we discussed worship. There's a spirited debate about what was allowed in worship, and the church began to see a divide, and this is a sad moment of our church's history because generations were split by this discussion. Here's how it typically went. This is not categorically true, obviously, but typically this is how it went. Older generations typically pined for hymns while the younger generation tribalized into yearning for choruses. You're like, what do we sing? And my answer is like, I don't know. Songs? It's kind of what we sing is songs. Um, Pastors who were leading churches throughout this period of church tell me that it was one of the hardest seasons to be a leader because passions and preferences were so deep and often parents and children did not see eye to eye. And I may be young, but I'd put pastoring in the second quarter of 2020 against the entire two decades of worship wars any day. 
I don't mean to make light of this period too much, uh, because at the center of this debate was an incredibly important and actually helpful question that we actually are resonating with today still. How must we worship? That's the question. How must we worship? And this cultural moment today has resurfaced this question in new ways for us to grapple with, right? Must we worship in a building? Next week's answer is no. Check in with us the week after. Must we worship every Sunday? Must we worship without YouTube hopping from church to church? What at the core of worship to our God is non-negotiable? This is the question before us today. It's a question that matters to your life as a follower of Jesus today, probably more than ever in our shared experience together at this church for sure. But in your life, how does God want you to worship him? How must we worship? This is a central question before us today in the text that I have. We have a story where Jesus encounters and engages in dialogue with a surprising person at a surprising moment in a surprising place. The story is told in John's fourth chapter of his gospel, John chapter four. And I love this story because it's one of those moments where we get an extended amount of time where Jesus is walking through and working in the life of someone who's so relatable to you and to me. And so verse one sets the scene for us. I want to invite you to look at your copy of God's word. I'm going to actually reference every verse uh, almost in this chapter. So we're going to make hay, we're going to go quick, and I'm going to get you out of here on whatever time you think is arbitrarily appropriate for you. John 1, now when the disciples learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Uh, If we just pause right here for a second, I love the way the, the old King James Version writes this verse. It said, he must needs to pass through Samaria. He must needs There's an easy way to get at the tension that John is illuminating for us that we can put into our own context. Judea was in the south, Galilee was in the north, and between them was Samaria. Not some area, but the country Samaria, S-A-M, yes, good. Judea, south, Galilee, north, and it seems like from pure geography, John is just pointing out the obvious. You get to point A to point C by going through point B, and... um, If you consider, though, this building right here uh, to be Judea in the south and Chicago to be uh, Galilee in the north, I wonder the route that you would take to get there. If you're like me, you would, um, you know, drive up to 51, get on to 90. Uh, 80, 94, take that in until you get to 94, take that up until you see the glorious. A wonderful building that is Comiskey Park. And you look at the sign to see what it's called today. And then you see off in the distance Galilee. I mean Chicago. You see Chicago, right? We kind of take, have you ever noticed that it's not a straight line, the way that you get to Chicago? Um, no, actually, if, if I were talking about a trip and said, yeah, I'm on my way to Chicago and I have to pass through Gary... Every single person that I would say that to would go, why? Why do you have to go through Gary? They'd probably say, that's not the way any of us go. 
You know, we built highways around Gary, and we built highways above Gary, so you don't have to go through Gary. You can go around it. You can go over it. You don't have to go through it. Now you get to the idea why John pointed out that Jesus must pass through Samaria, because he didn't. The Jewish people had built all of these routes to get to Galilee. They all went around Samaria. Why? Because the Jewish people and the Samaritans had long-standing family feud that led to national and ethnic and racial divisions. So why must Jesus pass through Samaria? Well, the answer has everything to do with worship. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, next to the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. You remember Joseph, many colors, technicolor dream coat, that guy. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Anybody ever imagine a wearied, exhausted, thirsty Jesus when you think about Jesus? This is who he is right here. It was about the sixth hour. So check this out. Not only does Jesus choose the road less traveled, he pulls over the car at a service station and he stops to get gas. You can imagine the picture. Jesus is walking an open road along the base of mountains and as the day carries on, the sun's heat becomes a little bit more intense and a little hotter and he being perfectly embodied as a human carrying perfect human needs as well as being perfectly God. That's a mystery. We concede that. But in his humanity stops for food, which his disciples go into town to go find him food and he wants some water. It's high noon. That's what the sixth hour means, verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. That's lucky for Jesus because he obviously has no pitcher with him. He said to her, give me a drink. And notice the two comments that John gives to us to help us understand. Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. And then John explains to us, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. If we missed it before, John makes it plain in verse 9 that the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans because there is deep racial animosity. And actually there's a depth to the phrase, no dealings with, that has been sanitized in our English Bibles for the past multiple decades. If you get back to the Greek, it literally means the Jews and the Samaritans do not share the same cup. We don't drink out of the same vessels. It reminds me hauntingly of that period of our nation's history where we had our own watering fountains for certain types of people. Jesus replies to this incredibly racial moment with what looks like a pickup line. And I promise it's not. Jesus answered, heard verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, ladies, if any man ever comes up to you and says, if you only knew the gift of God who was talking to you right now, run away. 
just run away, run far away. If you're young and some guy, that's like, no, that's out. You're out. Get out. Jesus actually, I mean, he's, he's not hitting on her, obviously. It's inappropriate to even insinuate. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? You see, she's jabbing him. She's kind of egging him on, kind of like, okay, Mr. Big Shot, you don't even have a pail. It's hundreds of feet deep. This is a notoriously deep well. That's why it's so long-standing. And uh, how are you going to get that living water that you're talking about? Notice this question. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. What's she doing? She's trying to make the argument that this is, this is a living well. This well has provided a livelihood in this region for our people for generations. It fed both our ancestors. Today it feeds us and it's fed all of the economic engine of our land, which is our livestock. There's a lot happening in this story and in this one verse that I can't comment on for the sake of our time, but notice that she switched her voice from the first person singular. How, did, how is it that you ask me, a, a, you know, a Samaritan, you're a Jew? And all of a sudden she changes her tense to say, the first person plural. She says, our father who gave us this well. And I, I highlight this for you because she's slowly, symbolically becoming a representative of all Samaritans. In challenging Jesus, she is saying politely, sir, you're not from around here. You don't know the significance of this well that has sustained our people for generations. And if this isn't living water, I don't know what is. It's essentially to say, um, thanks, but no thanks. Jesus then said to her, well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water. Think of that picture in contrast to a well. A well is stagnant. A well you have to get the water out of. A spring wells up on its own actively. A spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. Why? So that I will not be thirsty and I will not have to come here to draw water. I think this woman thinks that Jesus is actually talking about another well that nobody has found yet that is superior to Jacob's well. Perhaps it's a little closer walk to the city. She knows now that Jesus has something to offer, but she doesn't know what and thinks that it's going to make her life easier. And isn't this, I mean, man, isn't this how we do Jesus? We come to him ignorant about all that he is, all that he does. And we selfishly treat him like a genie who changes me from street rat to prince. Verse 16, Jesus then turns a corner. And Jesus said to her, well, go call your husband and come here. Which is an interesting, you know, conversation turn. See, we are talking about water. Give me this water. And then Jesus is like, all right, just go get your husband. And her response is interesting. She said, I have no husband, which is a very diplomatic response. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. All of us here who have ever watched an episode of Jerry Springer are now going, ooh. <laughs> Sorry, was Ricky Lake more of your thing in the 90s? When the worship wars were going on in the church, the whole wide world had this thing about daytime TV talk shows. So, 
Like, doesn't this just feel like you walked into a gotcha moment? Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. Right, you've had five. Now you're living with a man who isn't legally married to you. Aha, a sinner. In the modern world, only Zaza Gabor and Liz Taylor are allowed to do this and get away with it. Everyone else who shreds through spouses is called either a player or a cougar or a lot of words that I can't say from this stage. And it would be wrong of us to put any of those labels upon this woman. I know, you've heard this preached time and time again. She came to the well because it was noon, because no one in their right mind would ever go to the well at noon. It was so hot. Well, why the heck is Jesus at a well at noon? You know why you go to a well? You need water. That's why you go to a well. Any of y'all ever mowed your yard in the middle of the day? You had this conscious thought. You said, you know, there are better times. Like halfway through the thing, you're sweating, your neighbor drives by, he's like, hey, how about when it's not so hot? Literally happened to me this week. I was like, you're right, I'm a fool, why am I doing this now? Why? Because I have time and I can get this thing done. You've always heard that she had a reputation for being promiscuous. Why else would you have five husbands and then not live with the sixth? Or live with the sixth and not marry him? I can't get out of this text, and I really want to challenge you, and I actually defy you, to read through the book of John and harmonize the idea that this was some, listen, if I say the word falusi, is that offensive? Tell me now, because we'll cut it out of the broadcast. Okay, this is some, you know, falusi of a woman. You, You actually can't find that in the text. You know what you find? You actually find echoes of the ancient Levirate vows, which was given to Tamar in Genesis 38, and God had pronounced in Deuteronomy 25 that this was the custom of the day when a woman would be married to a man, and that man either died or abandoned her. The next in line of that family, the next male in line of that family would be his responsibility and his obligation to take care of that woman. If you ever thought of the woman at the well as some like hot model in a bikini who is trying to seduce Jesus, you got it all wrong. How long do you have to live your life to go through five husbands who either all die or abandon you? Now this woman... This poor woman had had a lot of life happen to her. This poor woman was no spring chicken. And here she is doing what she must do to get by. Here she is coming to the well by herself without any help. I imagine she's old. Like I imagine she's the old that like we really don't want her registering for services here type of old. You know what I'm saying? I imagine that this woman is in such dire straits that when she had five husbands who either died or abandoned her, that the sixth one said no. And then what was she to do? This is not a sinful woman on her own accord. This is a 
incredibly despondent, incredibly, incredibly, um, what's the word? Not depressed. That makes it sound too, too hard. Desperate, that's it. She is desperate for help. She is desperate for security. So she's living with a man who has refused to marry her, or she's found provisions and security with another man. Either way, this woman is marked by shame and desperation. It was Josephus, additionally, he's the early church historian in the hundreds, he said the um, Samaritans, not only were they enemies of the Jews, but they consisted in their ethnic makeup of five nations. There are five different nations that kind of intermarried together to form what are the Samaritans. Each one of these people intermingled and intermarried, and each one of them brought their own gods into Samaria to worship them. When Jesus calls out this woman, who is now symbolically a representative of Samaria, and he says, you're right, not only do you not have a husband, but the one that you're living with is not, is not your husband, and you've also had five other husbands, I don't think it's an accident that Jesus is calling out the past histories of Samaria, the past adulteries of Samaria, to call into mind, to summon into mind the real core issue here is not your morality, but your worship. And the two are not distinct from each other, but they are different. So look at what happens next. This is where Jesus pushes the conversation. He's kind of like dipped into her business and dipped out of her business. And she says, well, wow, I think you're a prophet. <laughs> you think? Imagine sitting down at Starbucks and having a, a, someone sit next to you say four words to you and then say, hey, by the way, I know about that one time. I know about that other thing. I know about this other thing. And I know how much your mortgage rate is. And I know how much other. You'd be like, who are you? Dude, are you spying on me? Is Russia spying on me now? You'd be freaked out. This woman says, why, well, okay, you're a prophet. And she turns the conversation to the ultimate challenge between Jews and um, Samaritans. Because if talking about racial differences wasn't hot enough, she goes, well, let's talk about religion. He says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. The mountain is called Mount Gerizim. But you say, Jews say, in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She says, which is it? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. And here we are at the crux of the matter, the ancient worship war, original worship war, so to speak. And the Samaritan woman's answer might seem like a deflection from her marital status, but perhaps she's been cut to the quick by Jesus, and he has specific insight into her life. And she pulls out this main division that drove the tension between the Samaritans and the Jews, the issue of worship, which mountain was greater the Jews had built a temple, the temple of God. It was planned and commissioned by King David in Jerusalem. The Samaritans also built a temple to God upon Mount Gerizim, which had tremendous history with the Israelites coming out of Egypt, the Mount of Blessing. And the question had always been, which was the right one? Isn't it true of us when we don't know who Jesus is and we talk about things of religion, we always talk about external factors? Talk to, you know, your friend wants to, you tell them later today, oh, I went to a church service. Oh, really? That's cool. 
you ask them, do you ever go to church? They go, well, I got a Bible. You're like, that's a start, I guess. Great. You got something. People who don't know who Jesus is, they asphyxiate, or they, not asphyxiate, that's what you do under a mask. <laughs> they fix their attention upon. I don't believe that, by the way. They fix their attention upon the outward. Which mountain? You ever have a friend talk to you about, like, why are there so many churches in the world? Why can't y'all just get along, right? Outside of Jesus, there's all of this attention to the differences and the schisms. And that's what she's saying. Hey, which is it? Which mountain has the right temple? And Jesus engages her. This is so brilliant because it's so quick, but you got to see this. Jesus engages her by saying, woman, and then what does he say? Believe who? I mean, it's more than just a like, okay, what I'm about to tell you is true. He's literally giving her the formula for where to worship right then and there. Woman, believe me. Because the hour is coming, the hour in the Gospel of John is this moment where Jesus is going to give up his life on the cross, die, be buried, and then rise from the dead in his glory. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What he's saying is something better is about to come than just these external places where you can worship. There's a better mountain that can be had. There is a better uh, marker that can be had. There is a better method that can be had. You worship what you don't know. There's a slight dig on the Samaritans because they believed that there was a, a prophet. They called him uh, Messiah. Sounds a lot like what the Old Testament predicted, but it was a different type of a thing. He would come back and he would establish true worship in Mount Gerizim. And he would show uh, the people how Moses had instructed this. So this is different because the temple of Jerusalem was based upon David's plan. David called his Messiah the Christ, the Lord's anointed this is super splitting hairs, but this is how they talked about it. They would say, well, what about the Messiah? And the Jews would say, what about the Christ? I mean, you think all those things are together. There was such nuance to their conversation, and Jesus cuts right through it, and he says, no, 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 listen, listen, the hour is coming. The hour is coming when you won't worship on that mountain and we won't worship on this mountain. She says, our fathers worshiped, and then Jesus says this. He says, you're not going to just worship your fathers. You're going to worship the Father. Jesus lays it out so clearly for us in John 4, 23, 24. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in, say it quietly out loud with me, in spirit and in for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We're going to come back to these central verses in just a moment. But I want to round out the story for us. The Samaritan woman is taken aback by Jesus' assertion that she worshiped what she doesn't know. She's kind of offended. Like, how do you know what I know? He already proved that. But Look at what she says, verse 25, the, worship, the woman told him, I know that the Messiah is coming. And John puts it in there because he's Jewish. He says, well, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What a great moment, like mountaintop moment with Jesus, like pun intended. And then notice what happens. The disciples come back and they ruin everything, like totally spoil the mood. 
Like Jesus digging in her heart, revealing who he is to this woman. And she, we don't know if she gets it. The disciples come back. They marvel that he was talking to a Samaritan. No, I'm sorry, a woman. That's worse. That was a joke, by the way. Aren't we glad that God gives value to women? But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? My grandfather called that the blessed silence of John chapter 4. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, this is great, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the, not Messiah, the Christ? They went out of the town and they were coming to him. There's so much here. I could preach seven messages off of this. But the task before us today is ask the question, how must we worship just for the remainder few moments we have of our time, I just want to answer this as we think about our church in the midst of a pandemic and, 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 and in a very new situation than we were just even five months ago. We ask the question, how must we worship here at Bethel Church? You as a follower of Jesus, how must you worship, not just in a pandemic, but in all times? And I think I see four very basic truths about how we must worship. And the first is that worship must transcend. If you take notes, I want you to write down four words today. The first is this, the word transcend. That sounds really, really new agey, but right here, it's in John chapter 4. What's happening in the story is a story of transcendence. An idolatrous, isolated, ignorant woman meets Jesus, and he offers her something that only God can provide. He tells her what only God can know about her, and he confronts her with news that he is the Messiah. That is transcendence, an experience with God that you can only have with God. She needs water. Jesus says, if you knew the one who had, you were talking to, you would worship me and find that I can give you water that is a spring of eternal life. That is transcendence. John chapter 4, verse 23 tells us, The hour is coming and is now here where true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. For, check this out, the Father is what? He is seeking such people to worship him. Friends, worship exists because God is actively seeking worshipers. He's in the game and he's at work, right? We sing it even when we don't feel that you're working. You never stop. You know, this is what we're talking about. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. In another place, Jesus said his mission was to seek and to save the lost. So here was a woman who was lost in her religious and ethnic confusion to whom Jesus transcended. That is, he crossed over cultural lines, racial lines, gender lines. And he was seeking a person, a Samaritan woman, to worship him in spirit. And in truth, this is why Jesus must pass through Samaria, because the kingdom of God is open, we find in John chapter 3, to Nicodemus, a Jewish Pharisee of high stature and high nobility, a wealthy erudite. But it's also open in John 4 to a cast-off, desperate Samaritan woman. Worship in our lives, it's not about a religious task or the right religious family or even the right religious sect. It's about knowing the God who shows up mysteriously in our lives and in this physical world. He meets us when we don't expect it. 
Do you remember the moment that God really captured your heart? You, you weren't looking for him, were you? But somehow he invaded your world in a tangible, physical way, and it changed everything for you. Worship must transcend. There's an element of mystery to our religion, our relationship with the Lord, our pursuit of Christ that we must never try to explain away. Elsewise, you ought to just go to a Garth Brooks concert instead of come here. I went to a Garth Brooks concert a couple years ago and I was appalled to feel like I was at church. People were raising hands. I think I've told this story before. I've got friends in the low places. They were doing this. I was like, that's what I do for God. (laughs) And if all this is, is outward religious acts and words that are put towards something, we miss it. There is actually a transcendent moment that happens when God and his people are gathered together. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it's important for you to be here today with God's people in a real physical space so that God can transcend it in his worship, hear our praises rise to him? This is not just some physical, local expression. This is spiritual. Hence, worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Worship must transcend. Ultimately, we worship God because in Christ, he transcended heaven to come down to us. Why do we worship? Because God came down. It reminds me of that song my dad used to sing to me. He'd say, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross, my Savior made me whole. My sins were washed away. My night was turned to day. When heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Man, if God ain't ever shown up in your life in a way where you couldn't comprehend it, you couldn't explain it, and it made you blow your mind in a way where you just had to yell, glory! That's what God's transcendence is pushing us towards in worship. Brothers and sisters, God loves it when his people recognize his presence and respond in praise. If you want to worship in spirit and truth, you got to see God in all the miraculous ways and the mundane ways that he is at work all around us and give him thanks. Man, you woke up to yourself this morning and you said, well, I know what I'll do. I'm going to go to the house of the Lord this morning. I'm going to put on a mask and lift my voice because God is worthy of my praise. That's what you said. You had to have said that we made you register. <laughs> you made a choice to come and worship. But check this out. Only God has enabled you to do that because he sought you. He first transcended our realm to be with us so that he could seek and save us who were lost. Worship, it begins with God. John 4 is going to push us to then realize this, that not only must worship transcend, that is to cross the boundaries between the physical and the spiritual, for God to come down for sure, for us to uh, see God at work in our physical world even for us to uh, transcend the cultural and gender and religious barriers that we have all around us. But secondly, worship must reveal. Must reveal. The sweet woman, she begins this conversation with Jesus in the dark, even though it's high noon. She ends up in the light. 
I think it's incredible that Nicodemus starts his conversation with Jesus in the middle of the night when it is dark, thinking that he's enlightened, and he talks to Jesus, and he's even darker than he was before. She first simply notices that Jesus is a Jewish man who ought not be asking a Samaritan woman for a drink. Then Jesus says he's greater than her forefather Jacob because he offers something eternal. And then Jesus shows her that he knows her deepest shame and desperation, that men have failed her over and over again. And he shows her that true worship of God extends beyond the mountains and the maps and the methods, but rather exists in spirit and truth because God is not limited to a particular location or a particular country or a particular people. No. Actually, Jesus tells her that he's using that mountain in Jerusalem and that those people who call themselves Jews, he's using them to change the entire world. So that when she says, I know the Messiah is coming, Jesus can confidently tell her, I, this Jewish man, this prophet, this Messiah, I am he. Every step of the way, Jesus is sort of pulling back the curtain a little bit further for her to see more and more and more and more about who he is and more and more and more and more about who she is. And this is what worship does for us. Worship must reveal. It makes me think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when when God shows up in his life, he falls to the ground and he says, woe is me. You remember this moment? He falls in the throne room of God. And he says, woe is me for I'm undone. I'm a people of unclean lips and I, 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 have, I have an unclean heart, essentially. I'm a sinner. And the closer we get to knowing the purity of our God, the further we go to knowing our own insufficiencies. Worship ought to drive us to our knees because God is worthy of it and because we know we're unworthy of it. Worship must reveal. I need worship in my life to remind me that I'm not God. We sing the song, that is who you are. I cannot come to God and praise for his supremacy until I denounce my own supremacy. If you've ever experienced God's transcendence, you've also had to confront your own insignificance. And in one sense, Jesus confronts this woman in her current living situation. He's revealing sin in her life, but more than that, he's revealing shame. You know the difference between guilt and shame. I've said this many times, but I'll remind you. Guilt tells you that you've done something wrong. Shame tells you that at your core, you are wrong. The more I worship Jesus, the more I find he reveals blind spots in my life that don't measure up to his standards of holiness, and I find that I've done things that are wrong. And the more that I worship Jesus, the more that I find that he has given me value that overcomes my shame because I know in him I'm more than my sin. Worship reveals. The higher I put him, the lower I put myself. That's what John said in John chapter 3, verse 30, right before this. He must increase, but I must decrease. Worship reveals the state of my heart and the need I have for a savior. And that's what it means to worship in spirit and truth. Spirit from our internal beings, not based on the mountain or a temple, but, but spirit from the heart. Truth, the truth that Jesus is the true Messiah greater than David, Moses, or Jacob. He's the one who God has used to point out our transgressions and provide our forgiveness. The truth that Jesus crossed ethnic culture, gender lines to bring the world to himself. The truth that he is the king of kings. That is what our worship must reveal about what we believe about Jesus. It must transcend, it must reveal, and then check this out, it must invite. Worship must invite. 
We make a big deal about the woman's backstory, but the zinger of the story is when Jesus reveals to her his identity, he is likewise inviting her to worship him. The one who is speaking to you, I am he, worshiping in spirit and truth. It means that we are all invited to come and worship God. And I wonder, have you spent your whole life worshiping on the wrong mountain? You come to Jesus, find true worship and purpose. Have you been stuck in a rut day after day, dredging up water to satisfy you and it never satisfies you? Come to Jesus. It's an invitation for us to give up the things that don't satisfy and give our lives to the one who does. Not only does a woman get invited to worship Jesus, I find deep significance in the fact that this woman, with her deep troubles and woes, left her jar and went into town and said, come and see. And the people left the city to come and see Jesus. Here's the difference between Nicodemus and John 3 and the Samaritan woman in John 4. Nicodemus came from the crowd to meet Jesus. After Nicodemus left him, the crowd turned against Jesus. But the Samaritan woman met Jesus and left him, and then the crowd turned towards Jesus. She worshiped him by bringing people to him. Did you catch that? She worshiped Jesus by bringing people to worship Jesus. It's an act of worship. Not just for her to stand there and talk about who he is and how bad she is. It was an act of worship for her to go and tell people to come and see this one who I think changes everything. He knows everything about me, and I think he knows everything about everything. She worshiped him by bringing people to Jesus. God is seeking such people to worship him in spirit and in truth, but he often uses people like you and me to make the ask. Actually, even better, he uses the marginalized, the outcast and the forgotten. He uses the lowly to bring the most magnificent king of kings and lord of lords, the true worshipers that he desires. I think Nicodemus thought that he was something, but the Samaritan woman realized that Jesus was everything. They both were confused, but eventually this woman was convinced and it changed her life. That's the biggest thing about how we must worship. Worship must respond. You say, Dan, how do you know that she responded in worship? Well, it's simple. She left the jar. She left the thing that she was doing to go give everything to bringing people to this guy. To bring everyone that she knows. The most important things excelled the menial things in that moment. This may not seem like a big deal to us because we haven't been reading John all the way through this series. We just kind of plummeted into John 4 today. But in John 2, Jesus took six jars and filled them with water to the brim. They were empty jars that needed to be filled. They were filled with water, water that Jesus then transformed and became a source and a symbol of life and joy. This woman had come to a well with an empty jar looking to fill it up with water only to find out that when she met Jesus, the jar wasn't the important thing. She herself was the jar that needed to be filled. He, she needed his water of life and joy everlasting. And since she encountered Jesus, she could walk away from that well in her joy, anxious to spread the good news that the Messiah is here, that God has come. Friends, I've saved the best for last. I promise I'm almost done. Because out of this Samaritan village come Christians 
New worshipers of Jesus. Verse 39, it ends this way. I didn't say this, but here, I want to show you this. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. Right? God, come into my heart and stay with me. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know. You can trace all throughout John chapter 4 the amount of things that people don't know. The amount of confusion and intrigue and all the chaos going around right thinking. And at the end of the story, what is, what is their declaration? We know. This we know. No, this is indeed the Savior, not of Mount Gerizim, not, this we know, this is the Savior, not just of the Jews, this is the Savior of the world, which is incredible news for a Norwegian Swede like me, because I'm not Samaritan, I'm not Jewish, I had no mountain. And yet God in his providence offered me revelation of who he is in his son, Jesus Christ. He offered me more than two days to dwell with me. He gave me his word, his truth that testifies that this is the son of God, the savior of the world. How must we worship? I'm so glad God didn't say in response to that question, on this mountain with these instruments at this hour of the day, because, quite frankly, all of us have some traveling to do. No, he said, you will be sought out by me personally and experience my transforming transcendence, and it will reveal to you how powerful and gracious and loving I am, not how weak you are. You will spend your, or spread your joy with those in your life who will come around and respond for themselves, saying it's no longer because of what you said, Pastor, it's no longer because of what you said, mom and dad. It's no longer because of what you said, teacher, that we believe. For we have heard from the Lord himself, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. So worship is a response to who God is and what he's done. Not a method or a style. Not a song or a prayer. It's a deep-seated faith in God that only comes by his spirit. And that spirit which recognizes the truth that Jesus is Lord. And this is how we must worship today in the midst of a pandemic. To be reminded that no politician, nor medical worker, nor science lab, nor whatever is greater than our God. No governor has a crystal ball. No pastor knows the safest way for you to come to a specific worship place and gather together. But we know we have a savior of the world. And we will be people who worship him in spirit and in truth, yearning for God to send heaven to come down. Yearning for God to reveal just a little bit more of who he is. Yearning for God to allow us to invite so many into this worship so that many more can respond in him. 
Friends, if you don't know this Jesus, I want you to know that throughout this service, he has been seeking you. And it could be my act of worship right now to invite you to respond in your spirit with him. The truth that the hour is here. The Bible tells us that today is the hour of that salvation, the day of worship, because Jesus went to a cross and he dealt with our sin and our shame and he rose from the dead to defeat sin's power over our lives. And we can face today and tomorrow and eternity with living water of joy, knowing that we have the greatest Savior. We ask him, come, Lord Jesus, but until then we ask you, would you come to Jesus? Could this be the Son of God? He's a Savior of the world.